Welcome back to Mindlocks. This is Rabbi Jeremy Marquise. Jen Dobre. This is Adir Yolkut. Josh Buchan. And uh, back again for another Mindlocks. Josh, we're happy you've returned. We loved having Rabbi B, Becca Walker, on the pod last week, so check it out. But glad, uh, Josh, you are back in our lives once again from your, your travels. It's um, great to be back. It's great to be home. Nothing like coming home. Mindlocks. <laughs> Jeremy, thank you for the warm welcome. I appreciate being back as well. Um, anyways, today I wanted to ask you guys and anybody who's out there listening and wants to uh, call in to our hotline, uh, what, given, given the nature of the work that we do, we're putting a lot of content out there in the world, be it in a sermon or in an adult education class or early child, something, any, really any area of education. Uh, I'm curious what your guys processes look like in terms of figuring out what is it that you want to say, like where are you getting your content from, and also balancing the need to share pieces of Torah that are kind of speaking to you and your soul versus speaking to the needs of what are presumably diverse communities. Uh, Jeremy, why don't you get us started with that topic? So I don't give a lot of sermons in my position right now, but uh, I teach quite a bit, a lot of, uh, of textual stuff, which is really nice. And uh, on one side, I'm guided by two principles, one of literacy and one of access. So I'm always trying to move people from a less literate to a more literate place. And then I'm try- I always try and create as, much, as many access points as possible. So whenever someone doesn't understand something, that there's like spaces for people to ask questions, stuff like that. So, so that's one side. And then the second side... Um, kind of more to your question in particular is, you know, I have a hard time uh, writing sermons and and teaching Torah if I don't either really agree with it or really, really disagree with it. And so the stuff in the middle is really hard for me. But once I have a strong feeling about something in either which way, that's usually what guides me. I have a couple follow-up questions before you buzz in, Josh. Um, Jeremy, I'm curious... When you talk about uh, the first part of your answer, the accessibility and what was the word you used to talk about? Literacy. Um, is that, does that mean you're specifically focused on texts that speak to that or that when you teach these things, you focus a lot on kind of words and learning language and grammar? So those are primarily uh, logistical pieces. So the texts I'm choosing are not specifically about literacy or access, but Rather, I am trying to break it down into the pieces that that will provide the person a tool for the next time they study Torah, right? Okay. So, so that so that like, oh, I see this word, I know to look for this word in the future, right? If I'm studying a Rashi, um, I know, okay, when I see this word next time, it's going to mean something to me. I have a new tool in my toolbox. Well, here's my question then, because that's. That seems to me a, a model that is pretty similar to probably how most rabbinical students start. I certainly remember in some in some way that being reflective of how we began. Um, but I'm more curious. So, how is it that you get the stuff that you're bringing that you break down? Like, what? Where are you going to get your information? Are you? Is it Google? Is it books you're reading? Is it rabbis? Is listening to rabbis' sermons? I, you know, that's that's also part of the equation. Uh, for me, I uh, I always start off by opening every book in my house. 
<laughs> and just slowly weaving my way through different branches of the tradition. So if I'm studying something based off of the Parsha, right, I teach about Torah and the Parsha pretty regularly, I'll open it up and I'll skim different different commentaries or things that are associated, use tools like Safaria, use the, the different resources I have in my house until I have something that catches my eye, catches my heart, right? Something that's like, oh, this is really interesting or this moves me or this is really problematic for me. And then that's where I start. All right. That's good. Josh, you want to weigh in on uh, your methodology? Yeah, I want to blow this dolphin out of the water, as they say. That's not a phrase, but go on. <laughs> it's a phrase I just made up. You know, it means like the dolphin is in one place. We're going to blow it up. It doesn't sound, sound like a phrase coming from a person who cares much for endangered animals. Don't worry about it. It's like blast fishing oh, with, yeah. with dolphins. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Okay, anyways. <laughs> I'm just saying I want to expand this conversation. Yeah. I want to take it outside of this microcosm. To me... It doesn't matter, I think, whether or not you're you're giving a sermon or teaching, um, whether you're you're a rabbi or, or or an educator or just a human being. I think that like maybe this is a, a very selfish response, but I think that what we speak most eloquently about and what is going to be most moving for other people is that which is closest to our hearts at the moment. So whenever I teach something, I don't actually think so much about what I think the audience might like. Because in general, my feeling is like my passion, my passion for the material, my passion for what I'm passionate about will be communicated to them. And I think if I just teach like what I think they're going to like, if I just teach what my, what I, what my perception of what the audience wants is going to be, I might not be inspired. It might be sort of not, not moving in that way. So, so my, my, the test that I always use is, is this, is this what I have to say right now? Is this what's interesting to me? And I think that, you know, again, this applies not just to, to teaching and speaking, but I think really in general in life, I, I think we're, you know, we like to share our passions with other people. Well, I don't think that that probably is not the guiding factor for what Jeremy said, nor I imagine for what I think, but I guess kind of the nitty gritty is if you're using that as your guiding principle, like you have to speak to what is true to you, where do you go to get that? Is it just like, oh, I have this idea. I want to talk about, I don't know, affordable housing, let's say. And I'm going to look in the Parsha somewhere in, I don't know, Shemot and talking about the Mishkan, the tabernacle. But like, uh, is that it? Is it, do you have a specific thinker that you like to go to who generally kind of aligns with, with your passions? I mean, similarly to what Jeremy was saying, like I, I have books that I tend to look at that I tend to go back to right, again and again and again. But, but what I was going to say was that that when I approach those books, or like if I'm if I want to teach from the Torah or from the Bible, let's say, I don't generally approach the Bible with a particular message or ideology in mind. Usually, I, I read through it, and, and sort of the, the 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 theme which comes up to me in that moment is it tends to be what I run with. And I think one of like the the most beautiful parts to me about Torah and about our tradition is that we are continuously coming back to the same stories again and again and again and again. And every year, even though you are reading the exact same story, you often find something different in it because you are in a different place. So for me, that, that's sort of how I approach it. That I'm not going to come in and say, oh, I want to teach about you know, economic justice or racial justice. I, I'll read through it. I'll sort of see what bubbles for me in that moment. And that's, that's kind of where I'll go. I, I know for me, a number of months ago, uh, kind of coming off of something that you said, Josh, I was really trying to find something from the Torah that would speak to me. And it was actually something external, like gun violence in that particular instance. That was the only thing that I feel like my soul could talk about. And I found tradition to 
that 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 worked for me to to make it happen but like the torah of the world around me was surpassed the torah that i was reading as my source material at least for that particular moment right so as opposed to doing it one way I, there's a uh, cases in which the outside world really is is the the primary teacher um at least for me at least in that circumstance and i'm curious adir yeah. uh, how you answer this question I'll tell you, Jeremy, it's great. Thank you for posing the question back to me. I, I appreciate you wanting to hear my answer, Josh. Um, I have to tell you, I feel I found it incredibly and increasingly challenging to find material um, that's really totally original. I think one of the blessings and the blessing and the curse of the job I have is that I, I've been I'm thankful to have had a lot of opportunity to to preach and teach. But I've gotten to the point where it feels like I don't necessarily know how to find that stuff just kind of out of thin air. So I rely on a select group of, of thinkers, people who I really go to a lot. So I would say one of them is um, Rabbi David Kasher, who I would really like to meet. I know you're friends with him, Josh. So this is my second shout out, David Kasher. Uh, let's, bring, a, let's bring him on the pod. Yeah, that would be cool. Nice. He has his own podcast actually from his site. So yeah, maybe we'll do a site. swap, a podcast swap. I love it. So his site is parshanut.com. And it's just, he speaks, he finds really interesting stuff. And he himself uses a lot of good sources, and he usually has a really good contemporary message. So he's up there. I use a lot of the Bar Ilan from University from Israel. They have a really good database, um, as well as Yeshivat Har Etzion. Uh, it's called like Virtual Beit Midrash (VBM). If you Google that, um, they have a lot of stuff from from their thinkers and teachers. So I usually call from that, um, find something interesting, and kind of riff off of it myself. And and I feel like I had to kind of get over my initial guilt of feeling like I wasn't really being so original. And then, and I realized like, this is what Torah study is. I mean, that's what Torah scholarship is. It's, it's finding things from people you, you know, you've come to appreciate and honor and respect and you give your own twist to it. And you kind of honor them in teaching a little bit of their Torah as well. I would say I have two places that I go to pretty consistently for sources when I, when I need a little bit of inspiration. One is uh, Nechama Leibowitz. Her, her commentary on the Parsha is pretty exhaustive and basically anything I've ever thought of, somehow she's already thought of and, and, and written better than me. The other, the other work that I go to is a work called Mayana Shel Torah, The Wellspring of Torah, which is an interesting work. It's also like a compilation of different midrashim, but it, it, it includes many like sort of spoken um, stories and legends where, where in the anthology the editor will say like, oh, this, this story was said by like a chassid or you know, a, a rabbi without sort of citing their particular name. And I've always found that really cool that we get to see sort of words and uh, Torah written from, from people who, you know, maybe weren't, weren't so famous with such big names in their day. Cool. Did you have anything specific, Jeremy, you wanted to say, like any, any thinkers you're using a lot besides just opening up all your books? <laughs> um, I, I'm a big fan of the Kedushat Levi. Um, hmm. Who is he? He is Reb Levi of Berdichev, a Hasidic Rebbe. And I find his Torah to be meaningful to me. Admittedly, I don't always understand everything he's saying. Um, he will make references that I don't totally understand. But I find nuggets, even if it's not what he is saying, the materials that he brings together. Right? I re he recently referenced a Talmud. Uh, a section of the Talmud that I found was so interesting, totally a different context than what he wanted to do with it. But I found just the access to it, the, the, uh, the link to it, if you will, was really, really interesting. And 
I, I've been trying to re, re-examine what would appear to be some of the most basic, basic material. Um, so, for example, I taught this morning a class on the very first Mishnah, Mishnah Brachot 1-1, about when you recite the Shema at night. And like really looking at these materials that appear, that seem so obvious to so many people or, 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 or that they're presumably not much deeper than the surface, right? When you recite you know, the Shema at night, whatever, I, I found that when I look deeper at that stuff, there's so much more, it's so much deeper. I spoke to um, Rabbi Adam Kligfeld, who, dear, uh, you worked with for, for some time, and he was telling me about Rashi, right, the, the uh, commentator on the Bible on the Talmud, that anytime it seems really obvious as to when, uh, when you know, what he's saying and what, what the simple reading of the Torah is, like as soon as you feel like, oh, it's so obvious, I don't really need to look any deeper into this, you've already, like, you've already made a mistake. Like that's the sign to look deeper into it. Um, and I think he's really, he's really so spot on about that, right, that taking a second look at it is so essential. So I've been trying to do kind of a little bit of both, like choose those rabbis and rabbis and, and materials like you guys mentioned and use those resources to, to inform me. And on the other hand, to look again at materials that I might have passed over so quickly and, and, and find ways to either reinterpret them or re-understand them or reapply them in ways that I might not have before. Yeah, that's cool. That, that's an interesting take. And, 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 Rabbi Klickfeld is also teach has been teaching a Rashi class where they are now like ten years in and they're still somewhere in the middle of the the, the whole of the whole book of Bereshit. So they really kind of take to heart serious in depth focused study, which is a not everybody can do it, but it's a pretty cool pretty cool idea. And I, I want to just um, pose this question. Right, we're talking about ourselves here as rabbis who are teaching other people. What what suggestion would you give for other people? Um, about what, how they can access Torah uh, when they need the Torah for themselves, right? Where they say, you know, the world is what it is and I need some Torah right now. What resources would you suggest to them? Uh, you might suggest Parsha Nut um, as an example or Nechama Leibovitz who, um, who has it in English. You can read it in English, stuff like that. What other resources would you suggest for normal person? I would say... First and foremost, look inside of yourself. Everything you're seeking is contained within you. Would you like to expand on that? What fish did you just blow out of the water? <laughs> that, was actually a, that was actually a tortoise. Is that a real answer? It's as real as I'm going to be right now, yeah. All right. Well, I would say maybe, I think first step is get yourself on some sort of weekly listserv. Like I think the, the hardest part about really starting Torah study is trying to find regular time. And if you have to like, seek it out right away, it might be difficult. But if you get it kind of coming to you at first, uh, pick a rabbinical school, pick a thinker, like a rabbi that you heard of, and, and sign up. Most people are writing weekly things that come based on the portion of the week. I think that could be a cool way. I wouldn't say to Google stuff, because inevitably Chabad.com is the first website you get to. And, and it's not to disparage it, because it actually is a, a really great resource and tool. But it's kind of, it, it, it's almost like hyper-focused in a specific theology and ideology. And I think it might be best, unless you happen to be particularly aligned with Chabad, in which case go for it. But, but uh, I just feel like you can get too far down the rabbit hole if you go in that direction. 
I think I'm starting to look like a bit like a Chabad rabbi with this beard. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. What are you thinking of changing? Uh, changing, changing facial hairstyles or changing stripes? For our listeners who cannot see Josh, he has a very large beard. James Harden-esque. That would be ideal. Nice I would much rather be a professional basketball player than a, a Chabad rabbi. Hmm. I don't think I'm cut out to be either, though, unfortunately. <laughs> I, I want to ask one follow-up to, to each of you, which is what piece of Torah have you needed in the last two weeks? Like, is there a piece of Torah, a line of Torah, a text that you needed in the last two weeks that might be helpful to somebody else or that you needed? I spoke this past week, Jeremy, about the moment when Moses, this is a Parsha nut inspired uh, teaching, so it's fitting. And Moses at the burning bush. And there's a little bit of a nuance in the text that we don't necessarily get that when Moses is seeing the bush, Moses has to turn to look. The text tells us that he turns. And there's a Midrash that talks about, well, what does it exactly mean that Moses turned? It was, it was kind of two-pronged. It was that he had to notice God before God would notice him. And he had to recognize the turning was a recognition of the plight of the people of Israel in Egypt. Um, so I think for me, that was a piece of Torah that was helpful because I feel a strong desire to be a more active um, kind of political and civil servant of our country, but I don't often, um, I'm not able to kind of push myself to do it. And that was a message of kind of like, get out, get beyond your own story, notice what's going on with other people in order to affect real change. The Torah that I needed to hear in the last two weeks, there was um, a, or a program that was, run in the, uh, that was run here in Pittsburgh called Kulam, it was, it's in collaboration with the Pardes Institute, and they're doing like a Beit Midrash program every two weeks. And two weeks ago, my Chavrut and I were studying, my study partner and I were studying one of the texts, and it asked the question, are you obligated to help someone who's lost? And the way that the, the text reads, it's about, you could read it about someone who's lost themselves. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways that my Chavrut and I were exploring it is what about someone who has mental illness, who can't ask for help but really needs it, or someone who is spiritually lost, who may not want to be found. And just like that recognition of the, the disparate needs that each of us might have as a person who might find themselves lost, either emotionally, spiritually, now, I don't want to say people who are mentally ill in one way or another are lost. I don't want to make that generalization. But people who feel that that they're lost in some way, as I sometimes do, uh, often do, at least certainly these days, just the recognition that, that that existence is in Torah and that the structure of that Torah was helping someone who's lost. That if I'm feeling lost, that there is someone out there who can help me and that I have the ability to help someone who feels lost. Nice. Um, and, and that was really helpful, helpful to me. Awesome. This, is, this might seem like passe as an answer, but, or trite, but I think that for me, the, the Torah which spoke to me the most in the last few weeks was actually the story of Joseph, which we just concluded in the Parsha. And Joseph is a character I've never really spent so much time thinking about. He's kind of like this wimpy obnoxious little brat who I always imagine as being kind of sniveling, like a tattletale, a big mouth. But 
I was mentioning before we began to these two fine gents here that the last couple of weeks have been sort of uh, lower for me. And I found myself in that pit. And I was, I was really moved this year. I mean this sincerely by reading the story of Joseph and that his journey is really one of going down and coming back up. And I do think that on some level, that's how life is, that we, we have these, these moments of, of, great, of great lows and we have moments hopefully where those lows are mirrored by a sense. Yeah, Joseph is my favorite biblical character. It's not even close. No one else is. There's not a close second. Really? Yeah, that's so surprising. Yeah, I never, what did, like, why is this that? year? I never really liked. Him. I find him to be the most real, like most human of all the characters. Like the experiences he lives in his life are so diverse in the sense that they reflect so many different moments of people's lives. There's a lot of pain there. Maybe that's part of it. Yeah, I mean, for sure. I think we all we all feel it, whether or not we admit it or not. Lots of pain in life. That was really my favorite character yeah. is the rock that Moses strikes. <laughs> Does it look like The Rock from Fantastic Four? It looks like The Rock from The Rock. Dwayne Johnson, shout out, coming on the pod. Uh, I was referring to the Sean Connery movie. Oh! Also, hey, Sean, give us a holler. We'd love to have you on the... Is he still alive? Yeah, an important point for a future segment. Movies that come on TV that you have... That you watch no matter what you're doing. That's a good one. Rock is certainly up there, tier to the top. So this is a nice nice transition to our segment uh, two... Uh, Josh, why don't you introduce it for us? All right. So we are living in a new America here. We're living in Trump's America. And every day I look at the news and I see a lot of scary facts out there. In fact, you know, yesterday I was sort of seeing some some footage about uh, this wall that they're going to construct for $15 billion. And I guess I guess the what I'm what I've been feeling more and more is that we are like, if not right now living in that we're heading towards living in a real post-apocalyptic, dystopic world. So the question I want to pose to you guys is, what is your favorite twofold? One is, what is your favorite post-apocalyptic depiction? And two, what post-apocalyptic depiction of a totalitarian society <laughs> do you think that our world most resembles now and or will most likely resemble within the next four years? Go. I, uh, well, I don't think we're living through a dystopia, first of all. Um, so I'm just going to say that, but I do love dystopian movies and stories. So I'm going to, nice. I'm going to take that part of it. I am a big fan of Demolition Man, which is a old Sylvester Stallone and Wesley Snipes movie where he's a cop that's frozen. Uh, and then he wakes up in this presumed, um, you know, new utopian kind of society where, you know, they don't have need for toilet paper and people get tickets for swearing. And it's a really silly and crazy movie. I would encourage everyone to watch it. Um, but Good choice. W- <laughs> thank you. But one of the reasons why I, I like it or one of the things that the, A, it's so silly, which I really like. And also, right, things that seem like they're really, really great on the outside are rarely, that's rarely true. And that piece of it I find really, really interesting. And so it's not really a dystopian, but I like that movie. Wait, what were you just saying? Things that seem different on the outside than on the inside? What? Right, so the society on the so the society on the outside appears like everybody's super civilized and it's really nice. And of course there's like an underground society that that it's really dark and challenging and you know, they that less stifled than the apparent utopian society. That right, things that look oh, this is going to be amazing, this is going to be utopian is, it's not really like that. 
Like nothing in life is really like that. There's problems with everything. Um, you know, I'm not sure that there is such a thing as a, a true utopia, right? That that will ever live in a period like that. Like life doesn't work that way. So. I don't know. I like I like to believe as like a sometimes religiously inclined Jew that there will be some kind of like messianic era, even if it's not a literal Messiah is going to come, but that there will someday be a day where we live in a more perfect world than this. But maybe that's idealism. I, I in, kind of in that vein, right? The traditions that I've heard in the Jewish tradition about this, like even in the messianic age, there are still going to be poor people and hungry people. And like, there's still going to be normal life stuff. Yeah, so. for sure. For sure. We'll just be eat, eating the skin of the Leviathan. All right, Adir, what do you got? <laughs> We got like a fish thing going on today, John. Perhaps the Divergent series, you've heard of it? No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I would say, what is it about dystopian, like apocalyptic stuff? Do you guys, like when you're watching it, there's something so entrancing about it, maybe because it feels so far off from what we live, but I, I, I love them. So I would say, and I was introduced to both of these by older siblings, much of my culture comes from them. So one of them is uh, The Running Man with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, which is this really crazy film where they basically take people from like different low levels of society and put them in a game show that people watch at home and they have to basically have one person survive and there's all these obstacles they put in and competitions they have to do and everyone has to die. Um, So that's pretty awesome because it's like a classic kind of 80s. It's a little bit kitschy and the acting is a little bit kind of out there, but it's a really fun and also, kind of deeply, a deeply meaningful movie hidden behind the, the special effects. Um, and the other one, well, I'd say it's a tie between the Escape from movies. I think there's Escape from LA and Escape from New York with Kirk Russell, yeah. which is really cool. Great choice. I don't remember much of them. I feel like I need to watch them again, but I remember loving those. And Battle Royale, which is a Japanese film. Josh, I think you ended up watching it, right? Jeremy, did you yeah. see it? I haven't seen it, but it. But so I it's know also it's, it's kind of like really a early up. version. People say this much bloodier and much more disturbing than Hunger Games, but kind of a similar thing of a bunch of school kids who are sent into this kind of battle to have one person survive. All three I love and and recommend it highly. Nice. Okay, so these are good, great choices. I'll I'll just share a few of my own top picks. So one is V for Vendetta, which the original the original comic was actually based around Margaret Thatcher, and to me that actually feels like very prescient like that like we could be moving into that world very soon maybe some people disagree i also think it's a nice model of what civil disobedience could look like maybe you know maybe not aren't, aren't there a lot of explosions in that there are a lot of explosions in that. and you're you're are you saying you're for that in terms of civil disobedience i'm definitely not going to say that on my, on our podcast <laughs> uh, no okay. i'm not for no i mean i'm not for violence i said like civil disobedience um have you seen the movie i have I mean, there's like like the way people come together into the unity of the of the people, like the mass flight of defiance isn't really more what I'm talking about than like the blowing up of parliament. I'm definitely not condoning blowing up buildings. Jesus, can we just cut out this whole segment actually? And, and it would be, it's a great movie for you to want to live out because you don't have to shave your head like Natalie Portman because you're already bald. That is true. <laughs> That's a great point. Although I think in my world I'm V. I don't think I'm Natalie Portman. Anyway, the other movie, I, I can't answer that question. The other movie that comes to mind is a, as a classic called Logan's Run, um, which is, is based X Men movie. No, 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 it's, no. That's just called Logan. <laughs> I think this is a '70s science fiction film about a society that seems perfect, but when people turn thirty, they're they're murdered or reincarnated, and like the people like escape and they discover like this whole other world. Uh-oh. 
the yeah that basically things aren't really exactly as they seem, and that the government is lying to them a little bit. And and then just a, a third one to throw down there because you mentioned Battle Royale, the uh, great film The Warriors, about a group of warring. Uh, what was that finger mean? About a group of like warring gangs in New York battling for dominance. Hmm. Pretty awesome film. If you haven't seen it, definitely worth checking out. Good times. Cool. I'd like to I'd like to add one as well to our list here. I wouldn't say it's necessarily a dystopia, but you, I guess you could classify it that way, which is a Blade Runner. It is That's definitely uh, a dystopia. Yeah, so it's a phenomenal movie. Uh, it's kind of gritty, and it's set in Los Angeles, if I, if I remember correctly. It has to do with clones and all sorts of other stuff, and or which they call them replicants in that movie, I think. And one of the things that I like about it is that it's in like the film, film noir kind of style. And so it's like a, it's a cool twist on it. It's a great movie. Everyone should see it. And they're going to come out with a sequel in the next, in the next nice. year or two. How about Mad nice. Max? That's a good recent uh, apocalyptic film. I thought that was pretty cool. Good choice. And I also was thinking um, The Man in the High Castle. I'm a little underwhelmed by the second season, but, you know, I could see us moving that direction as well. All right. Twi- Lot to discuss. Lot we to should discuss. do a whole podcast about dystopia. We, we, should. Should, we should actually just do yeah, a spinoff podcast, right? Break I love it. it. Uh, tweet us. Let us know what your favorite uh, dystopian visions are and how you're planning on surviving the coming apocalypse. What's that Twitter handle again, Josh? Mind underscore locks <laughs> at twitter.com. Uh, we'll be right back with our <laughs> media takes of the week. Pop takes of the week! are back and and, uh, back. <laughs> and we uh and we i want to uh do what we normally do and just favorite media takes of the week things that we saw we read we encountered uh in the world at large that that spoke to us this week so my favorite media of the week is a little obscure choice it's not actually a movie it is a meme perhaps you've seen it. it is a meme of Richard Spencer, the neo-Nazi, getting clocked in the face. And there are a number of great versions of this. My favorite one is the one where him getting punched is set to Gangnam Style and re-edited. If you haven't seen it, watch it. I'm going to be honest with you, this weekend, like, nothing made me happier than watching that over and over and over again on loop. There's something so satisfying about it. Highly recommend it. Check it out. Nice. Richard Spencer. Hmm. Um, I have two medium I'd like to address. One is music. I talked to the guys about it before the podcast, but I've been really into Amigos lately. They're uh, Atlanta rap trio. They're really popular now because of a song called Bad and Bougie, which got popular from Donald Glover shouting them out at the Grammys. But they have an awesome um, kind of collection of songs. T-Shirt is a really good recent one. They have an awesome video also of their song Hannah Montana being played with an uh, orchestral symphony behind them. Like all the, all the symphony is there and they're rapping over it, which is a really cool melding of genres. So they're awesome, and they're they have really good music. And also, I just started. This is going to sound a little weird, but the ser- a series of unfortunate events, which Netflix just put out, it's kind of kind of like a kid thing, but also speaks to adults too. I read a bunch of reviews about it. Neil Patrick Harris is in it as Count Olaf. I never read the books, but uh, I'm intrigued by it. I'm one episode in, so I'll keep you posted. The books the books are phenomenal, by the way. I read them a long time ago, and I and I love them. I, I highly recommend those as well. 
Nice. Jeremy, finish us off, buddy. So uh, one of the things that the, the three of us have talked about is the new Netflix show, The OA. And uh, I've watched the first couple episodes. I'm not sure if I'm totally in yet, um, but uh, I'm interested to see where that goes. So that that's really intrigued me. And and the second thing that I encountered this week, I've been really, it's been really hard with politics. I felt like I've had to really pull back in a lot of ways. And one of the ways that I'm entering back into it is in really technical ways. What I mean by that is the podcast, The Weeds, which comes out of Vox. It's Matthew Iglesias uh, and Ezra Klein and uh, a third person whose name escapes me at the moment. And they kind of really go deep on various policy issues. So healthcare, you know, others, that's the one that, that jumps off the, that I remember about. And it's really, really interesting. It's super specific and technical, which is some of my favorite kinds of stuff. And I would, um, I'd encourage people to do that. And I just started reading 1984. Number one bestseller these days on Amazon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so I started it. I restarted it last night, and uh, I'm excited to read it. So um, if people are reading it, tweet at us, and uh, well, maybe we'll do a little book club on the side. Hashtag Mindlocks Book Club. Nice. Blow up the piranha. <laughs> All right. Thank you for joining us <laughs> and our. Thank you for joining us for this surprisingly aquatic episode. And uh, join us next week uh, for Mindlock, same time, same place, in your ears. Goodbye. We can edit this part out. <laughs> By me, you mean me. He, he does all the editing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Shit. you'll edit it out. Yep. Right, gotta right. a, we got to do a quick third segment because I got to go teach a bunch of uh, seventh graders for four hours. Okay. Right? So, for me. so I'll, I'll, I'll exit and introduce. Nice. Repeal and replace, as they say. <laughs>